I should like to call your attention this evening to one of the paragraphs which we read at the beginning. The paragraph that is to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 22, from verse 8 to verse 14. Verses 8 to 14 in the 22nd chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he discovered the covering of Judah. And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. And ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool, and ye have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Ye made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But... Ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to baldness, and to girding with sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts, Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till ye die, saith the Lord of hosts. I think you will agree with me, having listened to a passage like that, that there is nothing which is quite so remarkable as we read through our Bibles then the way in which, now and again, indeed, very frequently, we come across a passage with a strange contemporary ring about it, with a, an almost uh, exact description of the situation in which we find ourselves. And this is so, uh, not merely in general, but uh, even down to details and minutiae. Now, this is not a kind of mere coincidence. This isn't a sort of accident. This is really just uh, an illustration of what the Bible says about itself. Or if you prefer it, it is an illustration of the great message of the Bible. The Bible claims to be the word of God. The word of God about himself, the word of God about man, the word of God about the world, the word of God about why the world is as it is, and the word of God as to how the world can be put right. For that is the whole case of the Bible. It claims that it has a unique teaching with respect to the problem of men. And it tells us right at the very beginning that men's troubles in this world and in this life, whether you think of men as an individual or men as a great collection of people, the whole world of men and women, the Bible's case is that all this has come upon us because of something that happened at the very beginning, at the very dawn of history. The Bible says that man fell from God. He sinned against God. And that as the result of so doing, he is in a state of sin. He says that men, the whole world, has been in that condition ever since the fall. And that that is the most important and the most significant thing about men that we can ever learn and understand. So, you see, the Bible says that the whole story of men from that first beginning has always been the same. It doesn't matter what changes they may be. The real truth is that man is in a state of sin and alienation from God. And that is the cause of all his troubles and of all his problems. So, whenever you read your Bible, doesn't matter where you read, 
In the Old Testament or in the New, whether it's an historical portion, prophetic portion, psalm, doesn't matter. Whether you're reading about one man, whether you're reading about the children of Israel as a nation, you'll find that the story, the message, is always exactly the same. It is always this story of man in trouble because he is in sin. And so, you see, it comes to pass that the Bible is always contemporary. It is always up to date. For it says that man is still what man has always been ever since that original sin, ever since that first fall in the Garden of Eden. And thus, you see, it comes to pass that as you're reading through your Bible, suddenly you come across a passage and you say, well, that might have been written today. It's an exact description of what is happening at the present time, precisely says the Bible. Because all the changes that have taken place in the human race are entirely on the surface. They're mere changes in a sense in appearance and in clothing and in things like that. Man as man, qua man, remains exactly what he has always been. So as you read the account of an old king in the history of the children of Israel, you're seeing a modern man. As you read of the whole of the children of Israel, you're seeing the modern world. Now then, this passage that we're looking at tonight is, I think, just a perfect illustration of what I've just been saying. Mustn't you agree with me when I say that I defy you to produce a more accurate, detailed description of the state of mankind in the world tonight than that which we have in these very verses? You see, the Bible is right when it says there is nothing new under the sun. And so it comes to pass that what we are told here of the state of the children of Israel and especially of the city of Jerusalem at this particular juncture in their history is an exact portrayal of the world at this very moment, this Sunday night in 1956. Very well, let us look at it and see what it has to tell us. Here, I say, is the word of God to men this evening. This is the word of God to any individual who is in trouble or distress in this congregation. It is the word of God to the whole world tonight, immersed and involved as it is in all these alarms and trials and troubles, wars and rumors of wars, and the horrible possibility of yet worse things to come. Let us then, I say, listen to it and pray, God, that he will give us his grace and his spirit to take this message unto ourselves individually and to ourselves as citizens of the world in which we live. What is the picture? Well, the picture is introduced by this remarkable phrase at the beginning of verse 8. And he discovered the covering of Judah. What does he mean by that? Well, it means this. You might translate it like this. He has taken away the covering of Judah. He has taken away, in other words, the covering that was over the eyes of the people of Judah. They'd got a kind of veil before their eyes so that they couldn't see certain things. But now, says the prophet, the covering has been taken away and they're suddenly beginning to see certain things. How had the covering been taken away? Well, the answer is already given in the early part of the chapter and the whole context and the contemporary history. Here it was. Uh, an Assyrian army had entered the land of the children of Israel. It had occupied certain parts of the land already. It was now advancing in the direction of the city of Jerusalem. And it was that fact that had awakened these people. It was that fact that had taken the covering from off their eyes and had forced them to look at the situation and to recognize certain things. 
Before that, you see, they'd been thoughtless and heedless, not paying any attention at all. Certain people amongst them had been trying to call them to their senses, a prophet like this and other prophets, but they wouldn't listen. They said, everything's all right. Don't bother us. Don't trouble us. Everything's going all right. The covering was over their eyes, but now with the advance of the Assyrian army, suddenly the covering is taken away, and they're aware that something's wrong, and they begin to think and to consider and to face the facts. How typical. What a perfect description of this present century. What an exact description it is of the late Victorian era, and especially the Edwardian era. Indeed, what a perfect description it is of what happened in the 1930s between the two wars, the two world wars. Everything's all right. Why? Things have never been better, in a sense, people said. Oh, I'm never tired of repeating this, you know. It's the whole essence of the gospel message today, that fatal optimism... The Victorians were perfectly satisfied in their lives that everything in the world was perfect. It could scarcely be more perfect. Well, yes, they said it can. It'll be still better in the 20th century. Science, advancing, developing, knowledge, growing. Why, what was there left but to enjoy the golden era that was about to come? Everything's all right, they said. And if anybody ventured to suggest that everything was not all right, he was dismissed as a pessimist. Man was inevitably going on towards perfection. I say that even after the First World War, people still continue to say that everything was all right. Go back, those of you who are old enough to do so, and consider the mentality of the 20s and the 30s. Even after the rise of Hitler, people said, no, no, it can't happen. You don't get two world wars within a quarter of a century. These things can't happen. The veil, the covering was there, and they couldn't see. And it's been the same even after this last world war. This fatal complacency, this refusal to recognize what was happening in the world, very well, but here are people at last, the covering is taken away, they're bound to face it. Isn't something like that happening to us, I wonder? Have not the events of the last month taken the covering away from the eyes of every person who's capable of thinking at all? Are we not being forced to ask certain serious, vital, ultimate questions? What's the matter? Very well, the covering has been taken away. Well, then what did they discover when the covering was taken away? We are told in the ninth verse. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. The covering having been taken away, being forced by the advance of the Assyrian army, they begin to look at and to examine the wall, the defensive wall that surrounded the city of David. And for the first time they discovered that there were many breaches and many holes in the wall. They'd never seen them before, but now they discover that there are many breaches in the wall. Let's be clear about this. It wasn't the Assyrian army that had made the breaches. The Assyrian army had not yet reached the city of Jerusalem. Why are there breaches in the walls then? Here's the answer simply because of the complacency and the indolence and the slackness of the children of Judah, the citizens of Jerusalem. They were enjoying themselves and having a good time. They didn't inspect their walls. They didn't examine them. They didn't make sure that everything was all right. Occasionally a mason or a foreman would come and say, look here, it seems to me that you need to repoint the walls at certain points. Don't be alarmists, they said. Let's go on having a good time. Don't talk about need of pointing, and so they'd neglected it, they'd ignored it, they'd allowed things to go on, the mortar to crumble, and at last you see the bricks and the, the stones had collapsed and there was actually a hole, a breach in the wall. Sheer negligence, nothing else. This fatal complacency that says everything's all right, there's no need to be a, to be worry or to be an alarmist. Am I not still describing the modern situation? Isn't this the fatal complacency that has been so true of us in this country? 
Isn't this how this, isn't this the way in which this country, which was once a religious country, has become an irreligious country? Isn't it entirely due to this slow, subtle process that goes on almost unobserved and we will not listen to and people, when they call our attention to it, are dismissed? That's how it happens. The walls of Jerusalem at those points didn't suddenly collapse. No, no, it was a very slow, insidious process. But it had gone on almost imperceptibly from day to day. And at last there's a collapse and there's a hole. That's how it always works. That's how it happens in the life of a nation. The great Roman Empire didn't suddenly collapse. It was a very slow process that undermined its health and its strength, its vigor and its life. And it's been the same with every great empire and every great nation. It was always the trouble with the children of Israel. But my dear friends, it's exactly the same in the life of every individual. No man suddenly goes wrong and all to pieces. It's a very subtle, it's a very slow process, this. He just starts by being a little bit slack here and there. It's all right, he says, nothing's happening. Just forgets to say his prayers, which he was taught to say by his parents. Just forgets now and again. Nothing in it, of course not. Just begins to play with drink. Oh, just one drink. Of course he's not going to be a drunkard. No, no. Just a little bit of moral slackness. And it comes in, and you see it's imperceptible. You don't know it. Somebody else says, look here, do you know where you're going? What's happening to you? You're not as faithful as you were to your prayers and to your church and to your Bible. Don't you think you're playing with fire? Don't be an alarmist. You say, don't be silly. I know what I'm doing. I'm well aware of where I am, and I'm in control of myself. That's how you speak, isn't it? And you know nothing about it until there's an actual breach in the wall. You've suddenly lost your chastity or your purity. You've suddenly lost your character. Something precious and vital has suddenly gone. That's how it happens. It isn't the enemy coming in and smashing it down. No, no. It's your indolence, complacency, negligence on our part. And these things happen and suddenly we are confronted by the situation. Something happens and we are awakened and have to wake up and rub our eyes and we discover the troubles the advance of the Syrian army. Oh, I say, isn't it happening today? Are we not all at last beginning to be aware that there's something wrong with men, something wrong in the world? The events of the last month, I say, must surely have awakened us. Ah, yes, that's all right, that's very good, but the vital question arises just at that point. What are the children of Israel going to do about this? What did they do about it? And the answer is that it was just here they went tragically wrong. And it was because of their tragic failure at that very point that the prophet addresses this message to them. It was because of that tragic failure that eventually they were conquered and their city was raised to the ground and destroyed and they were carried away captives into the captivity of Babylon. Now then, here is God's message to them to prevent that calamity. And my friends, here is God's message to us tonight to, pre to prevent the same calamity. Let's look at it individually for a moment. Every one of us is like this city of Jerusalem. Every one of us is under the eye of God. Every one of us in this world is determining an eternal destiny. The whole vital matter for us, therefore, this evening is this. If we have discovered that things are not well with us, if we have any reason for being concerned about our lives and feel that we've gone wrong or gone to pieces in certain respects and want to be right, well then I say the most important thing for us to discover is what have we got to do? And the same applies to this nation. The same applies to all the nations and to the whole world of men. Very well, I say, what do we observe? Well, we are told here first and foremost, of the frantic and the futile attempts 
of the children of Israel to deal with their problem. Did you notice it? I tried to bring it out in the reading. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David that are many. And what did you do about it? Listen. Ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have ye broken down to fortify the wall. Ye have also made a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Now, let's look at this. Here they are, you see, the advance of the Assyrian army is at last taken off the veil. They're wide awake, they say, we're in a desperate position. And you see the breaches in the wall, what can we do about it? And they began to get really busy and active. They entered into a great bustling activity. You notice they first of all went to that armory in the forest. The place they kept their implements of war, their chariots, their horses, and the various implements that they then used in making war with one another. They rushed to their Woolwich arsenal, if you like, and to all their arsenals, and saw what they'd got there, and added to them, and made great military preparations. But they didn't stop at that, you see. They did something with these waterworks and this water supply, and they were even going to use that as a matter of defense. And then they did a most heroic thing. They began numbering every single house in Jerusalem, and then they sent round the experts and said, well, now look here, we haven't got stones to build up the breaches. No reserves, you see. Not being aware of what was happening to the wall. They hadn't got bricks and stones and everything that was necessary. So they now become desperate and they say, what can we do? So they numbered every house and inspected every house in Jerusalem. And then they decided the only thing to do was that some of those houses had got to be pulled down in order that they might have the bricks and the stones to repair the breaches in the wall. Some people would be called upon to sacrifice their homes and their houses in order to defend the whole city. And they pulled down certain houses and they repaired the breaches. Here they are. And then this pool between the two walls. Tremendous excitement and activity and bustle and business trying to save the situation lest the enemy may come in. You notice the number of things they did? You notice the variety of things they did? You notice the heroic methods which they adopted? What a perfect description it is once more of this present century in which you and I live. Never has man been quite so busy in trying to repair the breaches in his life as during this present century. Never has there been so much busyness and bustle and organizing and planning as during this present century. All designed, as was the case with the children of Israel, to stop the rot and to build up the breaches and somehow or another to save civilization against the threat that was coming ever nearer to it. That's the picture. May I remind you of some of the heroics in which we have indulged as the children of Israel indulged? Think of all the political measures. Think of them here in our own country, home politics. Think of the acts of parliament we've passed in order to try to save the situation. Think of all that we've done in international politics, League of Nations, United Nations, organization, conferences, meetings, everything conceivable, UNESCO, bringing people together, solving certain problems together. Has the world ever been as busy as it is at the present time? And as it has been during the whole of this present century? You pick up the biographies of statesmen who lived a hundred years ago and more, and oh, how leisurely their lives seemed to be. Parliament used to have tremendous long vacations. Ministers were away for months. What a leisurely life it was. And look at the business of this present century. Bustling and bustling, getting this pool ready, pulling down houses getting that waterway into position, rushing to the armory. Never has men, I say, been so busy in a political sense, trying to save the world. Then think of it in terms of education, the social effort as well as the political. 
Look at all the money that's being spent on education in all the countries. Why, even in my lifetime, I've seen it developing and increasing in an almost incredible manner. I remember the time when we had, first of all, the directors of education in counties. They have now got assistants and those who organize further education and sub this and sub that. The whole thing has become a mammoth organization and we're spending millions of pounds upon it. All in an attempt to build up the breaches in the wall and somehow to save our civilization. Housing and all sorts of councils and conferences, marriage guidance councils, Everything's being organized. You know, they didn't have things like that in the past, but now everything's being organized. We are aware, you see, of the social problem, and we say it must be dealt with. And indeed, there are men who set up these things, and then we find they're in the divorce courts themselves, the experts on how to get married and how to save marriages. We are working day and night in all directions, somehow trying to save the situation, the bustle and the business of the children of Israel of old. And then all the talking and the writing about the application of the Christian ethic, that that's all that's needed. And if only we all adopted the pacifist situation, there'd be no more war and everything would be absolutely perfect. There it is. These are the methods and then the economic ones on top of that. It's finally an economic problem, says certain schools of thought. And if only you can put these right and make these adjustments, everything will be put right. And we've done that, but still the problem remains. And then the military. The money we are spending on armaments. And so on and so forth. Well, I mustn't keep you with these details. All I'm concerned to show you is this. That though these children of Israel had done all those things and had indulged in those heroic methods... In an attempt to save their city, it completely failed. It was frantic, but it was equally futile. And I am here tonight to tell you in the name of God and to remind you that everything we have done as men in this present century has been equally frantic and equally futile. Our world tonight is proving it. The nations have never been so highly educated as they are tonight. Never have we organized every department of life so perfectly. Yet look at the facts. Look at the breaches. Look at the enemy that's advancing. Why does all this fail? Listen to this answer. All the heroic methods came to nothing and failed completely. First, because these people, even when the covering had been taken off from their eyes, could not see still the real character of their problem. What did they fail to see? Well, they failed to see, first of all, the moral character of their problem. To them, you see, it was purely a military problem. They never saw that it had a moral aspect at all. As far as they could understand and see it, it was just a question of these breaches in the wall and making use of that armory and supplementing it and getting everything ready so that you could meet the army when it came. They never realized that it was essentially a moral problem. Where's that? Well, that's the message of verse 13. In spite of what God tells them in calling them to repentance, this is what happened. Behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's it mean? Well, let me divide it for you in this way. The first thing that was so tragically wrong about these people was that even the situation to which they had become awakened did not make them serious. In spite of the desperate character of their plight, I say they are still light-hearted, flippant, and still feeling confident and assured. Joy and gladness. Let us eat and drink. 
You know this book's a remarkable book, isn't it, the Bible? Is there anyone who can listen to things like this and still not believe that the Bible is the word of God? This is just an exact description of what's happening today. We are awakened, we are disturbed. This business in Egypt, this business in Hungary, and the other possibilities. We are aware that something's wrong. All right, it's on the front page of the newspaper. I know, but side by side with it on the front page. Is the endless series of photographs of these women and their married relationships as if it mattered to anybody or ever mattered at any time. When the world is on the verge of a third world war, perhaps, we must know about all these filthy details of these immoral livers on the front pages. We are still not serious. Though we've passed through two world wars, you can't read your newspapers without getting all this trivial nonsense still. Side by side with the serious is the flippant and the carefree. The press of this country shows still a fundamental lack of seriousness. But that isn't the whole truth about this moral failure. The flippancy and the carefree attitude, of course, is entirely due to something else, and that is the love of ease and the love of pleasure. Though the enemy is advancing, though the breaches are in the wall, though they haven't got their reserves and are having to pull down houses and do things like that in order to save the situation, still, you see, this is the position, giant gladness, Slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine, let us eat and drink. Nothing must be allowed to disturb our pleasure. Not even a war. Even the last war wasn't allowed to disturb our pleasure. Oh no. We must still have our drink, you know. There are many things we can go without and did have to go without them. Not without drink. I could prove that to you from statistics. Not without our pleasure, not without our sex, not without that kind of entertainment coming over the wireless. Nothing must disturb our pleasure, the things we like and the things that we enjoy. That must always go on. And that's the reason why we refuse to be serious. Did you realize, my friend, that the industrial problems confronting this country today are ultimately moral problems? They're not economic problems. They're moral problems. Whatever they may do about this business in Suez, I can tell you this. The papers are saying it. The economists are all telling us this thing. The whole future of this country is in jeopardy. I don't mean in a military sense. I mean in an economic sense. And why is it in jeopardy? Oh, I say it's for moral reasons. It's the love of ease and the love of pleasure. It's this new, false, wrong attitude towards work. And it applies on every side. The owners, the managers, the masters are as guilty as the workmen. Let's be quite clear about this. Sin is no respecter of persons, as God is no respecter of persons. And this moral rot is running right through the whole of society. There are so many owners in industry whose chief ambition is not to do a good day's work but to be called gentry. Their idea is to use their business in order that they may be gentlemen. They're interested in fox hunting and things like that. They're not interested in their works as such. It was they who began the long weekend habit and started the five-day week. There it is, you see, amongst them, but it's equally true amongst the working classes. They are simply repeating what they have seen the others doing. They say, if the owner can afford only to work five days a week, why should I work more than five days a week?
If he must have his cigars, why shouldn't I have my cigarettes? If he must have his wine and his expensive drinks, why shouldn't I have my beer? Perfectly fair argument. It's the same, you see, all along the line from top to bottom. Work is a nuisance. And the only value of industry is that it provides money that we can all buy food and drink and have a good time and enjoy ourselves. So whatever may be the position of the country, I must still go fox hunting, says one. I must watch that football match midweek, says the other. And here they all of them are neglecting their work and the whole country may be in jeopardy. It's a moral problem. The problem of this country industrially today is not an economic one. It isn't a social one. It's a moral problem. The attitude of men towards work is absolutely wrong. It's a nuisance and merely a means of providing money. There's love of ease and of pleasure. And then you notice the fatalism that always accompanies this. Let us eat and drink, they say, for tomorrow we die. What's the use of anything? That's the modern man, isn't it? He's an utter cynic. He's in absolute despair. He says, what's the use of anything? We all may be dead if that bomb's used, we're finished. Very well. In the meantime, let's have a good time. Let us eat and drink. Absolute fatalism and despair. Oh, you see, these children of Israel so long ago had not realized the moral character of their problem. But still more important and still more serious, they had not realized the religious character of their problem. Listen to this. They've indulged in their heroic methods, but ye have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. Oh, they run to the armory, they run to the pools, they run to the walls and pull down houses. They run everywhere, here and there. But there's one thing they never did. They never looked up. They never looked to God. They never realized that it was ultimately a religious problem. In other words, the whole story of the tragedy of the children of Israel is just this. They forgot God. And they forgot that God, that, that they were God's people. They forgot that it was God who'd given them the land, who'd made them a nation. It was God who'd given them the city and had given them every blessing and every victory that they'd enjoyed. They forgot that. They had a wrong view of God and a wrong view of themselves. And it's as true tonight as it was of those children of Israel of old. Oh, the present calamity is really causing people to turn to God and to think of him. Are they even causing men and women to get a right and a true view of themselves as men, as men? My dear friends, this is the ultimate uh, solution to the whole problem. Man is not an independent creature, an autonomous creature who can manage his own affairs. Man is a creature made by God, fashioned by God in his own image long ago, as this city of Jerusalem had been. And man has been made by God and for God. And he can only function truly as long as he is obedient to the law of his nature, the law of his being. That's why the world is in trouble, because man doesn't know the truth about himself. He doesn't know that he can ever be successful and happy and prosperous unless he is being blessed by God. He will tackle his problem economically, politically, socially, educationally, and in a thousand and one ways. But until he realizes that he's made for God and dependent upon God, all will be in vain because he is a creature of God. And he'll never succeed without the blessing of God. It is this fatal failure, I say, to realize 
that the problem is a moral problem and that the problem is a religious problem. And then the third thing that they failed to realize was this one. The profound and the radical character of the problem. You see, the children of Israel were always thinking that though there was a trouble, it was a very little trouble. They were always listening to the prophets who said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Ah, oh, they said there's something wrong, but you needn't be an alarmist. You mustn't try and frighten us. There's just a little wrong, but we'll soon put it right. They'd never realized the radical character, the profound character. Listen to this man putting it in these wonderful terms. You've done all this, he says, but ye have not looked unto the maker thereof nor had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. What's he mean? Well, shall I put it to you as a simple illustration? The problem of men as he is in the world today, I say, is a very profound, a very radical, a very deep, a very great problem. Look at it like this. Think of a man driving a motor car. Often in his experience something or another has gone wrong. He's got out and he's lifted up the bonnet of his car. He just sees a connection loose. He screws it tightly again. Off goes the car. Again it stops. Oh, it's just a little plug that needs a bit of cleaning. Off she goes again perfectly. And on and on he goes. Another accident. He can't deal with it this time. Turns into the nearest garage. In a few seconds the mechanic puts it right. Happens again. Ah, oh, just the same again. Then the day comes he has another stop. And he says, all right, I'll see if I can put this right. He tries, but he fails. Goes into the nearest garage now. The man there does his best. He can't do it. The local garage is no longer. He says, you need something further. Tries that. No. And then the man comes to him and says, I'm sorry to have to tell you. Your car is hopelessly broken down. There's only one thing to do with it. It must be sent back to the makers. You want a new engine. You must go back to the original fashioner. You yourself, the local mechanic, the local garage, no longer adequate. Back to the maker. Back to the works. Something radical, something altogether profound, something essentially new is needed. That's what this man is saying. Your heroic methods and your tinkering with the walls, even though you pull down houses and sacrifice, isn't going to deal with it. You must go back to your maker. Which being interpreted and put in modern form, I can put like this to you. The trouble with men in sin is not a problem that can be settled by acts of parliament, nor by education and culture, nor by economics and social measures and all your societies and organizations. For man's trouble is in his own nature, it's in his heart, and it is as wrong and as hopeless and as vile as this, that he cannot be improved, he cannot be put right by just a little adjustment here or there. He must go back to his maker. He's got to go back to God. He needs to be made anew. He needs a new engine, a new nature. He needs to be made a new man. And nothing short of that will ever meet the situation. But this is the thing that the children of Israel never realized. And they went to captivity. Modern man isn't realizing it. Or he wouldn't still trust to his own expedience and his own devices. He doesn't realize the profound character of his problem. And on top of that, of course, is his tragic blindness to the doom that awaits him if he continues as he is. That's verse 14. Listen. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord God of hosts. Surely 
This iniquity shall not be purged from you till ye die, saith the Lord God of hosts. God had spoken to these children of Israel and had called them to repentance. In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to boldness and to girding with sackcloth. What was their response? Behold, joy and gladness we couldn't care less. Who's God? Who's God to a modern man? Who's so brilliant that he can split atoms? Who's God to a modern man with all his education, sob stuff, tripe? Christ? <laughs> Suitable for an oath or a cursor to be spat upon. Your Christ and your blood, says the modern man. I won't grin such rubbish. Joy and gladness. Slaying oxen. Killing sheep. Eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink. That's the response. And it's all because he doesn't realize that this is God's world. That God has made this world. That God is the Lord God of hosts. Who's brought the whole cosmos into being out of nothing. Who can smash an army by blowing upon it. Who can raise kings and pull them down again. The Lord God of hosts. The modern man says religion is played out. Christianity is old-fashioned. He couldn't care less. He's not interested. And he's talking about the God in whose hand his breath is and whose are all his ways. We've all got to meet this God. You can't escape him. You can't evade him. He's made you. You're in his world. He can take your breath out of you just like that. He doesn't know he's done it. And you will certainly stand before him in the judgment. These people scoffed at him, but his word came true, was verified. And they were ruined and destroyed and carried away. And man is facing God in judgment. Very well then, what can we do? It's all here and it's perfectly simple. We have nothing to do but to listen to the word of God. And this is the word. In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, to mourning, to boldness, and to girding with sackcloth. What's he mean? He means repentance, my friends. A true repentance. He doesn't just mean that when things are desperate you have a national day of prayer. He doesn't mean that when things are very bad that the great of the land go to a service in Westminster Abbey and nobody can remember when they were seen in a place of worship before. He doesn't mean that. He means that we begin to realize that we are what we are and our world is as it is because we've forgotten him. Because we've desecrated and broken his holy laws. Because we are proud and arrogant and mad and drunk with our own self-importance. It means that we realize that we are going to die and stand before him and having had a glimpse of his holiness and his law and having seen the truth about ourselves, we become alarmed and terrified and we begin to weep and to mourn and tear our hair out and shave our heads as an expression of our grief that we take off our gaudy clothing and give up our love of ease and pleasure and put on sackcloth and ashes. 
that we humble ourselves under the mighty, almighty hand of God and plead his pardon and his forgiveness, that we surrender our lives entirely unto him, that we go to him and acknowledge it all and say, what wouldest thou have us to do? And he will tell us, believe on the name of my only begotten son. I've sent him into your world because it is as it is. And he alone can save it. I've sent him, he's done the work. He has died for you and for your sins. Give yourself to him. Receive his salvation. Submit yourselves to him and let him make you anew. Recognize your need of a new life, a new start, a new nature, a new heart, a new beginning. Ask him for the gracious influences of the Holy Spirit, entire submission and surrender, and then get up and walk in obedience to his laws. Let the world laugh at you. So this is God's way. It's the only hope. It's the only way to save us from disaster. You repent and acknowledge and confess your sin to God and obey him when he tells you to believe in his Son who has died for you and your sins and to follow him whatever the cost. And you will find yourself saved. You will find yourself at peace with God with a new life, a new nature, with a new outlook upon everything. The fear of death will go. The fear of the judgment will go. Having gone back to the maker, to the fashioner and designer, you will find yourself a new man. I'm speaking to you individually. Nations do not turn to Christ together, but individuals do. And as individuals do in large numbers, nations are influenced. Start with yourself, therefore, and then tell others, are there breaches in the wall of your life? Haven't you lost something very precious in this world? Aren't you ashamed in your heart of hearts? Wouldn't you like to be whole, to be holy, to be clean, to be true, and to be able to see through life, through death, and to know God and enjoy him? I say there's only one way. Go back direct to him. And as masses of people shall do so, so the moral and the social and the economic and the industrial and all the other problems will begin to be solved. This is the word of God. What you need, what we all need, is your maker, your redeemer. Fly to him. Amen.